Morning, everyone. What a beautiful summer day, huh? It's fantastic. It's great. We have a bunch of our Aug students here today. They have their uh, big uh, dinner later today. And they're here taking notes this morning. So if you're part of Aug, why don't you stand? Let's give them a hand. These are our... Uh, yeah. There's more around. Okay. That's enough attention for you guys, all right? But they, they actually go through a, a whole curriculum. It's amazing. For, for like, I don't know, nine months. And doctrine and all kinds of stuff. And then they, they earn this trip they go on. And so we're very proud of them. And a good job that they do. And the whole team, um, Heather and Caleb and all of our student ministries. Well, listen, we're in the last season of our series, Follow Me, where we've been talking about what does it mean uh, to walk through this life with Jesus. Now, I want to qualify that by adding that it's not just walking with him, it's actually having him walk in us because he comes to live in us. And in this last season, we're actually making our way to Jerusalem and to the cross. And when we get there, we're going to face a crisis of belief. Now, I don't know if you've ever experienced a crisis of belief or not. I certainly have. And not just once. But, you know, there are times in your life when you wonder, is God real? Is the Bible true? Can I really trust Jesus or not? Or is this just some big fairy tale? Have I, have I committed myself to something that's, you know, that's not really even true? If, you, if you've never had that crisis, you will at some point in your life. It, it happens to all of us. It may not be very long. It may be very short-lived. But, but we all have those times. And... And when we do, we're not alone. Disciples had a crisis of belief. I mean, think about these guys. They left everything. They abandoned everything to follow Jesus. And then they turn around, and Jesus is hanging there on a cross, dying like a common criminal. And, you, and, you know, they had to have wondered, what on earth is, you know, we left everything to follow him, and now, and now he's dying. What do I do with the rest of my life? And how we handle our crisis of belief really depends on, on what we think happened after the cross. But I'm kind of getting ahead of myself on the journey. And what I want to do is I want to back off because we're, we're like making our way up to Jerusalem right now. And on the way, Jesus has some very profound things to say and some uh, very big demands on our, on our lives if we're going to walk with him. But it's not just Jesus who has these demands. Uh, so do some of his followers. In fact, two of them today are about to make a, a request, almost like a demand of Jesus, and I want us to look at that together. So if you want to turn your Bibles open to the Gospel of Mark, those of you joining us online as well, welcome to you. And if you'd like to uh, use the few Bibles we provide, it's around page 15, 30, 35, somewhere in there. Get to the 1500s, you'll find it. And we're going to look at Mark chapter 10. And um, you know, something instituted a while back is standing for the reading of God's word. Because I just feel like, I just think we need to understand that the word of God, for many of us, is our anchor. It's what keeps us sane in this insane world. And just to honor his word. So why don't you stand together uh, for the reading of God's word. And uh, let me start at verse 35. It says, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, 
Let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. May God bless this word. You can be seated. You know, it took, um, it took an awful lot of, of chutzpah for these guys, James and John, these brothers, to, to make such a request or such a demand of, of Jesus. Um, no wonder he named them sons of thunder. And, and, you know, if you read the Gospels carefully, you'll find out in Matthew that it wasn't just James and John who asked Jesus for these privileged positions, so did their mom. Their mom was actually involved. Perhaps she even fronted the whole thing. And and you can imagine this Jewish mom, right? Hey, Messiah, would you do me a favor? Right? One on the left, one on the right. You think your son's great. You think your son's a doctor or a lawyer, right? Okay? My son's left and right of the Messiah. He said, what's that all about? What it's all about is the Jews at that time believed that when Messiah would come, he would overthrow any world power that was in control. And he would establish his his royal kingdom. And of course, you know, to rule the earth, he would have to have a cabinet of people ruling with him. And so these guys believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, can you blame them? Like somebody's got to sit at the left, somebody's got to sit at the right. Like, they want first dibs on that power and position. Well, what does it mean to sit at the left or sit at the right? We go back to ancient times. It's kind of strange for us, but in ancient times, it makes sense because a ruler, a king, for instance, would have officials around him or her. And uh, to sit at the left or the right simply meant that you were in such a high position that when you spoke, it was as though the king himself or the queen herself was speaking. A great example of this is Pharaoh and, and Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember when he elevates Joseph, second most powerful one, puts a ring on his finger? You know, when Joseph shows up, everybody has to bow to him, including the Egyptians. Because it's as though Pharaoh has just shown up. So when Joseph speaks, it's like Pharaoh spoke. When Joseph issues an edict, it's as though jo- uh, Pharaoh had issued the edict. And that's the, that's the position that these guys wanted. And and, and sometimes, you know, when I read the Gospels and I think about these guys, I I think to myself, you know, there had to be moments in Jesus' life when he must have just kind of rolled his eyes and kind of like went, oy vey, you know, what is this? You know, how come you guys don't get it? They were so thick-headed. I mean, even, even later on, as we'll see in this journey, in Luke chapter 22, when they're at the Passover, where, I mean, like, 
this is where Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm going to die again. Do you know that while they're at the Passover meal, these guys, it tells us, were arguing among themselves who was going to be the greatest. They are so much like you and me. <laughs> because all of us, all right, all of us have the same issue in our lives. All of us are like these disciples from one degree to another. We, all, we are all looking for power, and we're all seeking control. It's true about all of us, every last one of us. The most, quote, saintly person here. Or if you think about uh, godly people, Mother Teresa or Billy Graham, they struggle too with power and control. And I thought, you know, just so we can get it out of our systems, because to me, church is like a big 12-step group. You know, hi, I'm Dale, I'm a sinner, and you're supposed to say, because you are sinners too, right? So I thought this would be really healthy. Just look at the person next to you and say, I am a control freak. Go ahead. Just, just say it, all right? Get out of your system. I'm a control freak. <clears throat> all right, that's good enough. That's good enough. I know, I know what happened. I know what happened. Some of you married couples, you looked at each other and you said, you are a control freak. <laughs> that was not very nice, all right? But we are all, we're all control freaks. And I want to very quickly... I want to give you some reasons why, why that's true about all of us. The first one is very simple. We are born that way. We have a predisposition to want to be controlled, to want to have power. If you don't believe me, talk to any parent or grandparent or great-grandparent who has ever had a two-year-old in the house, all right? <laughs> control and power. In fact, we come out of the womb wanting control and wanting power, and unfortunately, we never get past it. Add to that the influence of our culture today. Our cultures, you know, the culture is inverted. The culture has us all looking in the mirror and thinking about ourselves, which just drives then this, this need for power and for control. And all of us struggle with fear and insecurity. And, you know, the way we, the way we try to get over our fear and insecurity is we, we want people to like us and and. And so we can be very passive-aggressive with control and power. We're always constantly trying to be accepted by somebody, some tribe, some group. And, and then, of course, there's, there's even issues within the church, right? Uh, I was thinking about this the other day, and I thought to myself, you know, even the church sometimes spawns this issue for control and power. And I was thinking about how often, you know, pastors, teachers, writers can misrepresent Scripture, and, you know, sometimes you'll hear about the health and wealth and happiness kind of gospel that's preached. Well, health, wealth, and happiness just puts all the focus back on me, doesn't it? And back on control and back on power. Or I thought to myself about, you know, the leadership crisis in our, in our world and our culture today. There, there are all kinds of books and seminars and degrees about leadership. And yet, despite all the books written and all the seminars and all the summits, we still have a huge vacuum of leadership. I remember when I was in seminary, that's about the time when you start hearing a lot in, in church world about how the church lacks leadership and we need to learn how to become better leaders. And so books were written by pastors and authors and summits were held and seminars were held. I went to a lot of them, how to become a better leader. But the problem is this. By the way, I'm all, I'm all for leadership. The problem is this. We forgot to make sure that, that character was in front of leadership. 
And so what happens is you forget about character, you focus all on leadership, and now we're reaping these horrible consequences in church world of, of high-profile leaders who are falling by the wayside because character got left behind. And so, and so we all struggle. We all struggle with power control issues. And so the question becomes, how do you overcome that? How do you, how do you become the kind of leader that Jesus was? How do you let go of power? How do you let go of having to be in control of everything? And it comes down to just two principles I want to look at today. The first one is simply this. All of us, every last one of us, if we're going to overcome this, we need to be ransomed. Say the whole phrase with me. We need to be ransomed. So let's look at the passage that we just read. I want to look at one verse in particular, and that's Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Would you read it aloud with me? For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. And I want to look at that word ransom. If you were to look at the original language, the Koine Greek in which this was written, the word that's used for ransom there, its, its background simply means to loosen or to unchain. So all of us need to be loosened. All of us need to be unchained. And I thought, you know, I could spend a whole lot of time up here trying to explain what that means, but instead, I'd rather demonstrate it. So I've uh, asked Adam if he would come up here. I'm going to pick on him first. And uh, Adam's coming up here, and Adam's going to uh, uh, represent uh, a sinner, which isn't real hard for him to do, all right? (laughs) So come on up, Adam, all right? Now, I've got a pair of handcuffs here, Adam. I am not going to ask you if you've ever been put in handcuffs before because, you know, that could cause some concerns and issues, all right? So we'll leave your past out of it. Uh, but I'm going to put these on you. I don't know if you've ever been cuffed before. These are real, that's a beautiful sound, click, <laughs> click, click. These are real handcuffs uh, given to us by a police officer. Wow, look at that, all right? Now, so Adam, I was going to do it behind his back, but that just felt a little bit too strange. But anyway, so, so Adam has been cuffed, okay? Now, Adam was born this way. He was born handcuffed, in bondage, chained, all right? And, all, and he's representing us, so all of us were born this way, okay? Not only are we born this way, but everything around us tries to keep us this way. And in fact, tries to get us actually chained to certain things, addicted to certain things, locked into certain things. And I want to talk about what those things are. So, Adam, go ahead and have a seat. I'll see if I can find the keys. All right? All right, so think about Adam, all locked up. That represents you, and that represents me. There are, and there are more, but there are three masters that we can become in bondage to, okay? So actually, do this with me for a moment, if you don't mind. I'm not going to ask you to keep doing it, just for a moment. Put your hands together like you've been handcuffed. Just kind of put them together, okay? The reason I want you to do that is I, just, I want you to own this, okay? All of us, all of us are going to be handcuffed to something. Listen, there's nobody who is, quote, truly free, okay? You're, you're handcuffed to something, okay? You can chill out or you can keep your hands that way if you like. If you want to empathize with Adam, you can go ahead and do that, all right? So three things that we tend to be handcuffed to. First one is the cruel master of self. All of us tend to be handcuffed to the cruel master of self. Paul wrote Timothy once in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, and he said, you should know this, Timothy, 
that in the last days, and understand the apostles, from what we can gather in the New Testament, thought they were living in the last days, like Jesus was coming in their lifetime. And of course, they were not, you know, they didn't have that right because the Bible reminds us that nobody knows the day or the time. A thousand years is like a day of the Lord, and a day is like a thousand years. But they thought it was happening. And so he says to Timothy that in the last days, there will be very difficult times. Now, what I want to suggest to you is that the closer we are to the actual return of Christ, everything I'm about to read to you now is just going to be magnified and intensified worldwide. So as I read this, think about the world we're living in right now. You will know this, Timothy, that in the last days, there will be very difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. Does that not sound like the day we're living in? Well, I mean, worldwide. It's just it's the attitude of our culture. But the phrase I want to focus on is that phrase that in the last days, they will be lovers of only themselves. That is so much of America today. Lovers of ourselves. How do you know, how do you know if, if you're in bondage to yourself? Let me just give you some ways to process this for a few moments. First of all, one sign that you're kind of in bondage to yourself is if you have a lack of empathy. Like if you, if you look at others and their, their difficulties and their challenges and you feel no empathy toward them, your kind of attitude is like, eh, that's their problem, not mine. That might be a sign you're in bondage. Or number two, a sense of entitlement. Like, like I've earned this. I deserve this. I got the degree or I won the game or, you know, I'm a victim. And, and so I, you know, I, have, I, sh- I should have some entitlement. Or using others can be a sign of, you know, this whole issue of uh, being in bondage to, my, to myself. You know, if you skip down here to superficial relationships, you know, there's the whole idea that, that um, I use my relationships for my own benefit. So I'll be friends with this person because I benefit from that friendship. But if I stop benefiting it, forget you, right? So people get used. People are means to an end, to my own, my own purposes. Or excessive need for attention and admiration. Like I just, how many likes do I have today on, on Facebook? Or, you know, how many people are following me and, you know, I, I've got to be, I've got to have the spotlight on me. I need attention. I, I, so I say and I do things just to gather the spotlight on, my, on myself. Or arrogance and domineering attitudes. Or difficulty handling criticism. Man, that's a telltale sign. Nobody likes to be criticized, right? I mean, we all struggle with that. We're good at it, but we don't like receiving it. But, you know, a person who's really uh, uh, humble and seeking God is going to is going to listen to criticism and then ask themselves, could this possibly be true? And do I need to change? It's hard to get there, though. Or lack of accountability. I don't want to be accountable to others. Or things always have to be your way. Everything has to go my way. Or, and this is kind of odd, but listen, preoccupation with fantasies of success, power, or beauty. Like, I, I can't actually get the power I want, so I'll fantasize. I, I wish I looked this way, so I'll fantasize. I'll, I'll fantasize about being in control. I'll, I'll have kind of an alter life where I am these things. And, you know, and, and with, 
you know, uh, AI and, and all the stuff that's happening in our world today, it's actually making it very easy to live a virtual life. You know, a fake life that almost feels like it's real. So I could be what I really am not in this life, but I can absorb and spend so much time in my alter, you know, world that, that in that world I can be this way. So with all that said, let me just be honest. Let's just be, let's admit it. There's none of us that can go through this whole list and say, yep, that, no problems there for any of this. To some degree, we, we struggle in some of these areas. The question is whether or not it's controlling you or not, whether you're in bondage to it or not, which takes us then to our second cruel master, and that's the cruel master of idolatry, the cruel master of idolatry. In, in John's little letter, we call it 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. He, he says this. Read it aloud with me, please. He says, Dear children... Keep away from anything that may take God's place in your hearts. It's like if I was analyzing this, I would circle anything, right? So, I mean, anything can become an idol in our lives. What defines an idol? It, it takes God's place, right? It takes God's place, and it takes his place in my heart. And when we think about hearts, think of desires, and I like the way Tim Keller defines uh, an idol. He says, our idols are the over-desires of our life. The idols are the over-desires of our life. So it's not wrong to have desires. Desires can be good things. They can be bad things too. But if I over-desire even some good thing, it becomes an idol in my life. It could be a person, a relationship. It could be money, a material possession. It could be sex. It could be food. I mean... Anything could become an idol. So the question is, how do I know if something's become an idol in my life? Well, one way to answer that is to say, is to ask the question, what would happen if that, that thing was suddenly taken away? Or what if it was downsized? Or, whether, or, or what if it was diminished? Could you handle it? Could you deal with it? Now, I understand, you know, for instance, you know, we can idolize our health, having great health. And I understand you could go through something where your health is, is shaken, right? You could have cancer or some other kind of sickness that really, you know, sets you on the side of the road, so to speak. And I understand that that could shake you up. It would shake me up too. But, but could you work through it to where you would just go, God, I, I'm doing the best I can take care of my body, but ultimately it's in your hands. You matter more to me than, than my health. You matter more to me than my money. You matter more to me than that relationship. You matter more to me than whatever it is. Is there anything in your life right now that was taken from you would undo you, in other words? If so, then it's very possible that that undoing, that represents this idol that's in your life. I told you on the way to Jerusalem, it's, a, it's not an easy journey. Lord has some pretty demanding things to ask of us, right? But he wants to free us of things that can cripple our lives. Now, let me, let me point out a third master, and I never really thought about this before until I was reading some things by Tim Keller, and it makes sense. It's the cruel master of the law. And I'm talking about the Word of God, the, the law of God. Now, the law of God is, is pure, it's good, it's true, it's right. I'm not saying the law itself is cruel, but if you try to live your life by the law, it becomes cruel, because all the law does is it points out your failures. It points out your imperfections. It shows you that you aren't good enough, you aren't pure enough. So how do you end up in bondage to the law? Oh, there are a couple of ways. One way you can end up in bondage to the law is you get defeated and discouraged. 
I mean, if you try to live by the law, you are eventually just going to get, you're just going to give up. You're going to get so discouraged, so defeated. It's like running on a treadmill. You just can't get anywhere. Or you'll become a religious fanatic. It'll all, it'll be all about, I got to dot the I's, I got to cross the T's. And then, the, and then you become like a Pharisee because here's what happens, okay? In order to feel like I'm, like I'm good enough, I'm righteous enough, I've got to compare myself to you. That's what the Pharisees did. And so they would look at others and say, we're not like them, therefore we are better, therefore we are righteous. And that can easily happen to us. How many of us feel better about ourselves because we're not like so-and-so, we're not like them, we're not like, you know, I didn't do that, I didn't act that way, and we get this sense of superiority in our lives. Or the third way I can become in bondage, and this is kind of weird, but think about this, is I just, I just go forget it, and I just go all in for hedonism. Because I, can't, I, can, I can never possibly be good enough, I'll just be as bad as I want to be. So, you know, either way, it ends up being kind of a, a mess in our life. So how, you know, how do I get freed from all of that? What, what has to happen in my life so that, so that I am freed from this? This doesn't happen to me anymore. Well, I want to go back to the passage, and let's look at a verse, something Jesus said. He asked the two guys, and really all his disciples, and you and me, can you drink the cup <clears throat> I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Now, this is a rhetorical question. Because the answer to the question is, no, they can't. Now, if you're looking ahead at verse 39, you're saying, but they said they could, and Jesus said they would. I'll explain that in just a moment. But think about this cup as big cup. In essence, what Jesus is saying, you cannot drink the big cup. Now, you're going to drink a smaller cup, but you cannot drink the big cup. Well, what does Jesus mean when he talks about, can you drink the cup? To understand that, you've got to go back to the Old Testament and ask yourself, well, what does cup represent in the Bible? In the Old Testament, cup represented the wrath or the anger of God. And what is God's anger toward? God's anger is toward sin. And guess what? You and I are sinners. So, for instance, in Isaiah chapter uh, uh, 51, verse 17, we read these words. God says, wake up, wake up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk the cup of the Lord's fury. You have drunk the cup of terror, tipping out its last drops. In other words, I'm going to judge you because you rebelled against me. Ezekiel talks about this. Other books of the Bible talk about this cup or the wrath of God. God is wrathful towards sin. And that's not popular today. It's not popular to talk about the wrath of God, the anger of God. We, we like to talk about Jesus and how loving he was, even though we forget that Jesus got angry a few times. And he's very, he has no tolerance for sin. Narrow is the way to eternal life. Wide is the gate to hell. Those who walk on it. But people have a hard time with this idea of God's wrath. And if you really think about it, it's hypocritical. Because we're no different in, in certain ways. That if you actually truly love somebody... There are going to be times in your life when you feel anger. Let me give you an example. Let's talk for, for a minute about art. Now, I know some of you as personally are artists. Met you, I've seen uh, the work. Um, I want you to imagine that, that you are an artist and you've been working six months on this beautiful painting. It is the best, it's the best you've ever done. I mean, it's, it's beautiful. 
and, and you could probably sell it for $10,000. It's, it's just, you've put your blood, sweat, and tears into this portrait that you've been painting. And then all of a sudden, somebody comes along with this big black marker, and they just go like this on it, and then they tear it in pieces. How many of you would be a little wrathful? Let me see your hands. Uh, of course. Why? You, they took something you created and damaged it, right? Now, let me make this even more real for a moment. And, and, and anybody can relate to this, but I'm going to pick on dads for a moment, okay? Those of us who are dads. How would you feel if you found out that your 13-year-old daughter was being abused by somebody? How many fathers in this room besides me would become extremely wrathful? Absolutely. Why? That's your daughter. You love her. You made her, so to speak. And that somebody would do that. Oh, my goodness. We'd come unhinged, wouldn't we? Well, I want you to listen to what, and I'm going to just quote from Tim Keller writes. He says this. He says, sin is the destruction of God's creation. His masterpiece, you and me, we're the art, we're his children. And the greatest act of destruction is when we decide we're going to take our bodies and our souls, which belong to God, and run, and I would add, ruin them the way that we want. And that draws God's ire. It draws God's wrath. And the Bible says that the wages of our sin and the ultimate wrath is death and separation. But I want, I want to show you what God does rather than try to explain it. So I'm going to ask Adam to come back up here, and I'm asking Brian to come up here, and Brian is going to represent Jesus to us. So Brian, just... Don't let it go to your head, all right? All right. So, what happens? God says, I can pour my wrath out on Adam. But if I do, Adam's done. There's no hope at all. It's like Adam's been kidnapped by sin. And God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send my son. And my son is going to die on the cross. And he's going to take Adam's place so that Adam could be loosened and unchained and forgiven and accepted. So, Brian, I'm going to hand you the keys. I hope the key works and let you set Adam free, hopefully. Otherwise, he's going to spend a long time in those cuffs. Did it come off? It's coming off, right? So, so Christ dies on the cross, and literally what happens is my sins are taken from me. We talk about this all the time, and they're placed on him. And in that moment, we are forgiven. You're free, Adam, all right? So he's free. He's been set free, all right? Now, here's what I want us to realize. So, Adam, I want you to take and cuff Brian, all right? So what happened is when Christ went to the cross, we're going to see this in a few weeks on Good Friday, right? What happened is God allowed his son to become chained to our sins, and Christ then takes that wrath of God on himself. You know, and the Bible tells us that in the garden that Jesus sweat blood drops. The Greek there is from the word that we get thrombosis. The capillaries literally in Jesus under his skin burst and the blood came seeping through the pores. And, and doctors, scientists tell us that is humanly possible, but it requires the most extreme stress for something of like that to take place. You know, I don't, I don't think it was the beating and the actual crucifixion 
that caused the blood to pour out, though I'm, I know that contributed to the Lord. I think, I think what, what caused that stress in his life is knowing that he was going to take our sin and experience the wrath of his, of his father. Remember how Jesus cried out on the cross, my God, my God, what? Why have you abandoned me? God had to because, I, because he became, his son became chained to our sins. And then Christ died. And he was buried, right? But something happened. Three days later, he emerged. You see, he broke the chain, so to speak. So um, see, Adam, if you can get that thing loosened up and we set Brian free. It's just kind of a picture of what we are so looking forward to at our Easter celebration, our, our freedom that Christ has brought to us and that we can actually celebrate uh, as a result of that, all right? So Brian has been set free. Now, Adam has a decision to make. Now, this is where it affects you and me, all right, even as believers, all right? I can either, I can either enjoy my freedom in Christ. So if you guys don't mind holding hands for a moment, I can either enjoy my freedom in Christ or let go. I can go back and get in bondage to the world again. But I am never going to be free independently. Do you understand that? You never will be. If you think you are free today, you are lying to yourself. You're in bondage to something or someone. Some philosophy, something that has a hold of your mind. But if they hold hands again, all right, this, Paul will refer to this as I'm a bondservant of Christ. This is actually a ticket to real freedom because Christ is only ever going to give us true freedom. Amen? All right, let's give it up for these guys. Thank you, guys. So I need to be ransomed, but then here's the second point. When I'm ransomed, it gives me a new purpose in life. It gives me a new purpose in life. I am free from myself. I am free from myself. And when you're free from yourself, it just gives you more time. It, it relaxes you. It gives you more energy. It gives you more, more of an opportunity to be like Jesus, which takes us back to that, that verse when the disciples say to him, yeah, we can drink that cup. And Jesus says to them in verse 39 that you will indeed drink from my, and the Greek there is my bitter cup, and with my baptism of suffering. In essence, what Jesus is saying is you can't drink the big cup. Only I can endure the wrath of God, and I'll die for you. But if you choose to hold hands with me and walk with me, you'll, you'll be in freedom with me. But listen, the world will hate you. Jesus says that in other places. The world will hate you for following me. And you will suffer, and you will experience persecution, and you will go through hardships. Why? Because, because if you truly know me, you're going to forget about yourself, and you're going to become a servant to others. Because you forget about yourself, I'm leaving you here because I've got a purpose for you. Until I call you home, I want you to let people know what, what I've done for them. And in order for people to know what I've done for them, you got to be willing to suffer like I did. That's why Paul in Romans talks about sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Let me very quickly give you three aspects of being a servant. To be a true servant, and you can evaluate yourself. To be a, a, a true servant of Christ means that I prioritize the needs of others instead of seeking my own needs and my own, and my own status. Is that you? 
Do you put the needs of others before yourself? Paul talks about that in the letter to the Philippians. Secondly, a servant uplifts others. And I love this point. Making them feel valued to the abundance of affirmation they have received from the Lord. See, if, if I'm in a good place with the Lord, if I realize I'm loved unconditionally, I've been forgiven, I am free in Him, okay? I just have all kinds of energy then to go and lift you up, to affirm you, to tell you about God's love, to love you like God loves you so you feel it, instead of wasting all my time trying to get you to love me and care about me. See how freeing that is? It's either all about me or it's all about you because of what Christ has done for me. And last but not least, a servant says, how could I feel self-pity when I see what I've received from the Lord? When you're thinking about that, I want to tell you the story about a guy by the name of Maximilian Kolbe. He was born in Poland, but he was German. And um, when he was 12 years old, and you'll see a picture of him up here, when he was 12 years old, um, he had a vision, he said, from the Virgin Mary. And in that vision, Mary asked him, will you, will you set your life aside and be dedicated to me and will you wear the red crown? And the word red crown, or that phrase red crown, means will you, will you be a martyr for me? Will you be willing to die for me? And he said yes. So he devoted himself. He became a priest, Franciscan priest. And um, he was very smart. He became a PhD in philosophy. And he went to Japan and began a monastery. And then he went to India and began a monastery. And he became, he became sick. And he had to go, he had to go back, back to Poland where he started a monastery and began teaching. It was about the time of World War II and the Nazis had invaded Poland. And uh, since he had a German heritage, he was given the opportunity to sign a sheet of paper uh, as a German that would have given him extra rights. And he refused to do it. He may have been German, but he was a citizen of Poland. He was going to suffer with the Polish people. And then he began preaching and, and speaking out against the Nazis. And he got beat up for it. But he went shut up. And so they arrested him and sent him off the infamous Auschwitz uh, death camp. And there <laughs> he kept teaching and preaching and kept getting beatings. One day, 10 prisoners escaped Auschwitz. And as a result, the commandant decided he was going to teach the rest of the prisoners a lesson, don't do this. And, he, and, and, and the commander selected 10 prisoners and told everybody that they were going to be put in a bunker and starved to death. One of the prisoners, when the sentence was uh, uh, spoken out, cried out and said, please, not me. I am married and I have, and he had several children. He was the father of several children. Please, please, not me. And Colby stepped forward and he said, I'll take his place. And it's almost unbelievable that they allowed it, but they, they did. They said, okay, you can take his place. And so the priest and the other nine were put in this bunker and uh, he kept praying with them in the bunker and talking to them about God in the bunker. And eventually, nine of them died, but he was still alive. Barely alive, but still alive. And finally, they just gave him a lethal injection, and he died. Well, the man whose place he took survived Auschwitz and lived to be 93 years old and spent the rest of his life telling everybody about his human savior, Maximilian Colby. That's what God asks you and me to do. To be so grateful for what he has done for us. 
that we spend the rest of our lives telling people about Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we think about this passage and what we've heard and learned today, I pray and ask God that you would show us any areas where we might be in bondage right now to self or to idols or even to legalism. I pray that we'd have the courage to confess it and to seek your forgiveness and be set free. Lord, I pray that in that freedom, and I pray this for myself, Lord, as well, that in that freedom, God, we would give ourselves to being true servants of Christ. That somehow we could say, like Jesus said, I'm not here to be served, but I'm here to serve and give my life if, if I need to as a ransom for many. Father, I confess to you my selfishness. I confess to you my expectation of being served so often. I ask for your forgiveness. Perhaps others need to as well. Teach me, teach us how to serve like you and to enjoy our freedom. Lord, the hardest person for me to forget is myself. And perhaps that's true for others who are here as well. Help us, Lord, we pray, to forget about ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.